The storm raged on, threatening to destroy the boat while Jonah ran away from God's mission. The mariners asked Jonah why the storm had come upon them. Jonah told them that he was running away from God's mission, and they were furious with him and asked, What can we do to calm the seas? Jonah told them, Throw me into the sea and the storm will calm. Nervously, they listened and threw Jonah into the water. The storm calmed and the men rejoiced and praised God. As they drifted from Jonah, a great fish came to swallow him up. Jonah would stay there for three days and three nights. Well, good morning, TVC. Well, it is good to be with you. Becca, thank you so much for that challenge. As someone who has been engaged in overseas missions, someone who has studied missiology, which is the theology of God's mission, it is a privilege and an honor to be in the book of Jonah talking about mission. I remember as a 14-year-old from Mumford, Tennessee, in Tipton County, going overseas to Romania for the very first time, and there God capturing my heart for the nations. And through my years, and particularly in studying the mission of God, I have to just admit that it is a passion of mine. It is something that I long for every single person who knows Jesus to be passionate about, that every single one of us really are missionaries, every single one of us. Now, what is very interesting about us here in the U.S. is that it does seem like God is streaming the nations to us uh, where we are able to engage even in cross-cultural missions in the U.S. because of what God is doing. But as we will see uh, this morning, when it comes to the mission of God, which I'm going to define all of that once again, when it comes to the mission of God and our engagement in the mission of God, it is, it is extremely difficult. It's challenging because it challenges our idols, and we'll see that uh, this morning. Well, let me also welcome all of the kids with us. If, if you're a kid and you're normally not in here, raise your hand, raise your hand. Uh, like, yeah, there's a little, yeah, <laughs> yeah I see, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but hey, welcome there, children. Uh, it, it's going to be an incredible morning because you get, you, you get to watch me. Don't throw anything at me because I will try not to be that boring. And then also, let me just welcome those of you who are connecting with us online. It is great for you to be here with us, and we are grateful for you. Well, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Jonah. Last week, Pastor Eric, he did an incredible job kicking us off in this series, uh, Jesus and Jonah, where we're not only looking at the story of uh, this prophet named Jonah, we're also seeing how Jesus is the greater Jonah. Now, as I've been studying the book of Jonah, it really kind of dawned on me over the last two weeks that Jonah is a great, it is a great book of the Bible about parenting. Now, this is the reason why it's a great book about parenting. Even though it's, a, it's about a prophet being sent uh, to a to a foreign people, it really is a good picture of a parenting because you have a father God who... Uh, calls out to his child and says, I want you to do this for me. 
His child throws a temper tantrum, runs away from him, and God, Father God, lovingly pursues him in discipline and kind of changes his mind a little bit where he begrudgingly obeys. That's parenting the teenager, right? Uh, Because you'll say, hey, man, I want you to do this. I don't want to do this. And then they storm off into their room, and then you lovingly discipline them. You take away their devices. You ground them, and then they're like, okay. And then they begrudgingly obey. That's the story of Jonah. Because one of the things that you will not find in the book of Jonah is how Jonah turns and truly accepts what God wants him to do. You will not find that. And so that's where I'm like, this is a great book. Like, like uh, families, if you want to know what t- you know, pa- you know, parenting a teenager is like, read the book of Jonah. That's it. Now, uh, this week, uh, it's going to be a little bit different because, uh, I mean, one, it's the, it's the fourth, right? So uh, happy fourth. I'm actually going to give you two sermons in one. You're like, oh my gosh, we're never going to get to our picnic. No, you, you will. But as, as I was studying this, like, there, there's two main ideas. Like, so if you've, if you've ever heard me talk, you, you know that I, I typically have one main idea and then I flesh it out. Well, I got two main ideas this morning. And so you're just going to have to bear with me. And so let me just pray and we'll kind of dive right in since we have a lot to cover. Father, uh, we thank you for Becca. We thank you for her, her husband. Uh, Father, how you have uh, called them, how they have faithfully and joyfully obeyed. And now even in this new season of mobilizing, Father, we pray for your favor on their life that you would send them men and women uh, who are passionate about reaching people far from you overseas in another part of the world. And Father, may you do a mighty work in and through them in their new season. Father, we pray for our time here this morning that you would change us. You would even challenge us at the core. May we leave different than when we came here this morning as a result of the Spirit's work in our midst. For it's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Big idea number one. Like I said, I got two big ideas, but big idea number one is this. The more we learn about the mission of God, the more we will be challenged with the idols in our life. You you do realize throughout the history of civilization, there's constantly been tension between countries and nations, right? There's this conflict, there's this tension in the world, and there's always been about who's the supreme power, what nation is in control. Well, and especially if you look at the Middle East, tensions have always existed, like, you can see that even in our news feeds today, just recently, there was tension around Israeli and Palestinian. And so there's no difference today than what existed in the day of Jonah. Now, in the day of Jonah, you had some major players in the region. You had the Assyrians. Everybody say Assyrians. Assyrians, that's the capital of Nineveh or Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. You had the Egyptians, and then you had the Babylonians. And the Assyrians at this time, they were the real kind of dominant power. Now, God asked Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it. This was a huge paradigm shift, particularly around mission. 
Now, just so that we're on the same page, here's how I define God's mission. God is on mission to create a people for himself from all peoples on planet earth so that they might reflect his glory in all spheres of life. So God is on mission to create a people from all peoples to reflect his glory, his characteristics, his nature, his attributes in all spheres of life. In other words, God is on mission to create a kingdom for himself on planet earth. You see that from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And so what you have, though, in the book of Jonah is a shift in God's mission. Well, what's that shift? Well, this is the first time God is going to call one of his children to go cross-culturally to another people. So, so this is the first time. You will not find this happening prior to Jonah. And so just so that, so that you will trust me, I, let me just give you a brief history. So if you look at the trajectory of mission, God actually is going to start uh, this, this kind of worldwide mission with Abraham. Because in Genesis 10, you have the table of nations. All the different nations are created. And then you actually see in Genesis 11 where that kind of happened at the Tower of Babel. And then in Genesis 12, you have this man by the name of Abram. Everybody say Abram. Abram. So you have this man, Abram, that God says, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great name. I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you, hey, just, just FYI, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. I'm going to bless all the nations on planet earth through you and your descendants. Well, so if you study the life of Abraham, he doesn't see much traction. So God calls him from his place to go to this land of promise, but he gets there, but he never becomes a great nation. He never becomes a great country. What he's doing is his, he's laying the foundation, the, the framework for that. And, and then you have his lineage. And it's not until the 12 sons of Israel, right? And not until them and they go to Egypt that now God is going to multiply their numbers. And so for over 400 years, you have Abraham's descendants in the land of Egypt. Everybody say Egypt. Egypt. And so Pharaoh at that time, who is the king of Egypt, he starts looking at these Hebrews and like, man, there's so many Hebrews. If they ever wise up, they could actually overthrow us. So let's start, let's start really enslaving them. Let's start kind of, you know, exerting our force over them. Let's dominate them so that they know who the boss is. Well, they start crying out. God hears them. God had already raised up a deliverer because he was a prince in Egypt who happened to also be a Hebrew, but he's in the wilderness. And anybody know that guy's name? Moses. So Moses, Moses is called by God to go back to Egypt uh, to be the deliverer who's going to free the Hebrews, free the Israelites. Now here's here's what's so amazing if you look at that story, particularly in Exodus 12 verse 36, we read that a mixed multitude went out with the Israelites went out with the Hebrews. Who's that mixed multitude? Well, it's Egyptians who saw the power of Yahweh and said, oh, we want some of that. And so you have this group of Egyptians now being grafted in 
to Israel. Well, so now God is going to take the Israelites and he's going to take them to the land of promise. Now, here's what's so interesting, too, that you don't need to miss. If you go back to Genesis 15, you will see God and Abraham having a discussion. And God tells Abraham why he cannot have the land just yet. And here's what you will find. The sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, I am a gracious and merciful God. I'm going to let the Amorites and all of the inhabitants who live in that land, I'm going to, I'm going to let them live however they want to. But there will, there will be coming a day when I will cut off my grace, cut off my mercy, but it won't be until 400 years later. And so now Israel has been charged with the command to go into the promised land to enact judgment on the people as a sign of God's judgment on them. That is the reason why they are to wipe away all of the inhabitants of the land. God is judging them as sinners. Well, so that's the conquest. But here's what happens right before they get into the promised land and kind of go in all their conquest. Joshua sends some spies. And he sends some spies to Jericho. And these spies, they run into a woman. Anybody remember the name of that woman? Rahab. Rahab, is she an Israelite? No. No, she, she is, uh, uh, let's just put it this way, since we got young ears in here. Uh, she's just an immoral woman. And this immoral woman, she brings the spies in, she protects them, and she's like, I know that your God has given you this land, and so I believe in your God. So when you come into this land, will you remember me and my family, and would you spare me? And what happens? God spares Rahab. But what happens with Rahab and her family? They are grafted into Israel. Well, you fast forward, and guess what happens? Well, Israel disobeys God. They don't really wipe out all of the inhabitants. And so these inhabitants will be a snare. It will be a trap for Israel all of Israel's days. Well, but then you fast forward and you go into the book of Judges. And then we are introduced uh, to a woman by the name of Ruth. And she actually has her own book of the Bible, Ruth. But it happens in the day in the days of the Judges. And Ruth, let me ask you this, this is just Bible trivia. Uh, was Ruth an Israelite? No. Anybody remember what she was? A Moabite. And so uh, Ruth actually meets some Hebrews, meets some uh, Israelis there in the land of Moab because they had fled. And then Naomi lost her husband, lost her kids. And all she is left with is Ruth, her daughter-in-law. And she tells Ruth, hey, won't you just go back to your family? Uh, you, you know, you don't have to stay with me. And Ruth says, no, I'll go back with you to your land. And so Ruth goes back with Naomi. She claims Yahweh as her God. She eventually meets a nice Hebrew man, Boaz. They get married, and she actually becomes part of the lineage of Jesus. But here's what you have. You have a Gentile now being grafted into Israel. Well, so you continue to fast forward, and then you see that Israel, instead of judges, they want to become a monarchy. And so they want to start having a king to rule over them. And so anybody remember who the first king was? Saul. Saul was the first king. And then you had David and Solomon, and that's the heyday. That's the golden age of Israel. Listen to some of the things that David says. Uh, This is what he says before he kills Goliath. I love that story. But he says, 
so that the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. So you have this idea that even from David, that he wants the whole world to know who Yahweh is. And then he writes psalms like this in Psalm 96. Declare God's glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Then his son Solomon, in dedicating the temple, here's what he prays. That when they, foreigners, pray towards this temple... Then hear from heaven, God, your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. And so even in the golden age of Israel, you have both of the kings declaring this idea that they want the whole world to know. They want all the families, all the nations on planet earth to know Yahweh. Well, then after Solomon, here's what happens. The nation actually weakens from a civil war. And then that nation is then divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, everybody say the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, uh, they, they struggle even more so than the southern kingdom with disobedience following other gods. So if you read, if you read the history of the northern kingdom, they severely struggle. The southern kingdom was a little bit better, but they still had their pockets of disobedience. They still had their pockets and their seasons of uh, following other gods. Well, the northern kingdom is who Jonah is a part of. Jonah is a prophet to the northern kingdom, and he is a prophet at the time of Jeroboam II. Now, we read about Jeroboam uh, II, how he was an evil king that did evil in the sight of the Lord, yet he had achievements. He had great successes politically and militarily. And that's who Jonah was under. Uh, that is the prophet whom Jonah was under in terms of the kingdom there in northern Israel. Now, here's, what's, here's what I want you to also keep in mind. It will be just a, just a little over 40 years. Everybody say 40 years. All right. It will be just a little over 40 years from the time Jeroboam ends his reign. He, he rules for 41 years. It will be just a little over 40 years until the Assyrians sack the northern kingdom and conquer them. Now think about it. 40 years. I'm almost 40. And when I look back and I'm like, wow, man, 40 years has really passed by. Like, so it's not too long after Jeroboam, during the time of Jonah, that the Assyrians will come and sack the northern kingdom. And now God, so here's why, here's why I say all of this. So I say that we have, we have tensions in the Serena. Who's going to be the superpower? Are the Assyrians? Are the Babylonians? Are the Egyptians? Are the Israelis? Are they going to be the superpower of the region? Uh, that's who's jockeying for power. But then you have also the mission of God. Now, God is, has, has at least what we have seen up until this point, had this paradigm of having individuals or smaller groups being grafted into Israel. Now God is calling Jonah to go to enemy territory to declare the good news that God wants to save you if you would just repent. Could you imagine being Jonah? This is the first time this has ever happened. And you want me to go into a hostile, unstable region 
when our own country is unstable and has had a history of being weakened, and you want me to go into the enemy territory, who is really more the dominant power in our day, and you want me to give them an opportunity to repent? See, this call, this ask, this command, it tries Jonah's theology because it threatens Jonah's life. Jonah, he's an Israeli and a Hebrew. If he just walks up into Nineveh, people are going to see that. Be like, whoa, what is he doing here? Let's kill him. It'd be like someone wearing a MAGA hat going into a BLM rally. Like, what is he doing here? And then vice versa, right? You're going, you're going, into, you're going into territory that's hostile towards your way of life. So it threatens Jonah's life. He literally could lose his life if he went into Nineveh. And then it tries Jonah's theology because it threatens God's people. God, God, if I go to Nineveh and I preach and they are saved and you do relent, then their existence will always threaten our existence. So it's threatening God's people. See, God is rocking Jonah's world because he teaches Jonah a deeper dimension of his mission and grace. And Jonah is clearly struggling with this new revelation. All right, so let me ask you a question. Here's a question. You ready for it? Say, "Uh uh-huh. I'm going to give it to you whether or not you're ready or not. Here it is. What new theological or missional revelation do you struggle with? Um. You do realize that when we come to Jesus, we don't know everything there is to know about Jesus. All we know when we come to Jesus is that he is king, that he is Lord, he is perfect. He is the king of the cosmos, that we are sinners and that we repent of our sin. We place our faith and trust in him and we dedicate our lives to follow him. That's kind of what we know. Now, you might have a little bit more Bible background, but... But that's really where we start. And then as we continue to read his word, as we continue to fall under this idea of discipleship, being conformed more into the image of Jesus, here's what you will find is that as you grow and grow more in understanding of who he is, you are supposed to be growing in your shape and formation of who he is. And so as you grow in your understanding, you and I will be challenged to our core about who he is and who he wants us to become. See, that's what Jonah is realizing, is that God really hasn't shifted. Yeah, God has always thought this way. It's just taking him a little while to kind of now move towards this paradigm. And just so that you know that Jonah wasn't the only person to struggle with this, if you read the first part of Acts in the early church, they struggled with it as well. It wasn't until persecution broke out that they actually left Jerusalem to go to the nations. So so he struggled. Jonah struggled with it. The early church struggled with it. We struggle with it. Now, what were the idols that Jonah struggled with? Ethnocentrism and nationalism. Now, I know those are two big words. Let me define them. Ethnocentrism is that he thought the Jewish race was the superior race. Nationalism is the supreme love of country. 
And so what we learn even with Jonah is that ethnocentrism and nationalism definitely detract and prohibit God's mission. If you think that you are the superior race, you'll never go to another race. And if you think that your country is in some sense supreme and you have ultimate love for country, you will not go to a people that threatens your country. And you will not be open to people coming into your country that would threaten your country. Now, like I said, uh, what theological or missional revelation do you struggle with when it comes to the mission of God? See, when we are challenged to give up our idols, especially the ones that we love and that we cling to, we have to go through a period of loss and grief. Now, think about the five stages of grief. Number one, anybody remember? Denial. Second is anger. Third, anybody remember? Bargaining. Or, and then the fourth is depression. And then the fifth is acceptance. Now, what you will actually see through the book of Jonah is all four of these. You will see denial. He runs away in defiance because he, he, sort, he sort of plays it off as denial. If I can run away from my problem, I can deny it ever existed. And then he has this idea that I'm going to run away from the presence of God. Now, here's the thing. Jonah knew that he couldn't run away from the presence of God, but that word presence actually means face. So if he could run away from the beauty and the face and the connection and the relationship of God, he can deny that God ever asked him to go. So he's, deny, he's in denial. Let me just put a picture up, a map up. You, you have this map. All right, so you see Joppa. It's right there. So Samaria, the northern uh, part of Israel. And so God asked him to go to where Nineveh, way up there. Go to the enemy, all the way over there. And where does he go? He goes Tarshish, the other way. I'm, I'm just going to deny he ever did it. But as he denies, as he runs away, sees this runaway prophet denying that God ever called him, he's angry. And then I would also argue that he is depressed. Why? Because he's asleep during a hurricane. And I don't think he's asleep because, because he's seasick. I don't think he's asleep because he's really tired. I think he's asleep because he's emotionally distraught and depressed. And then if you fast forward to the end of the book, he's angry at God towards uh, he's angry at God because of God's mercy towards the Ninevites. He becomes angry at God after God takes away the shade from the plant that he gave him. And then he bargains with God at the very end and he says, "Take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live." Jonah is dealing with grief and loss as this runaway prophet. He is in denial, he is angry, he is depressed, he's bargaining with God. Why? Because he's living within two worlds. He's living within the world where God is supreme, where God is king, and he's living in the world of clinging to his idols. And can I just say that any time that we struggle between both worlds, we will, we will constantly go through one of those levels when it comes to grief. See, Jonah never accepts what God's calling him to do. He never accepts it. He begrudgingly, like I said, he's like a teenager. He begrudgingly obeys, but he never accepts. 
See, when it comes, see, and Joni and I, we, we can attest to this because we've now got two teenagers in our house. Like, you can either do it, you, you can either do it the hard way or the easy way, right? Well, what's the hard way? All right, the hard way is we ask you to do something and you go, no, and you blatantly disobey and you run away. And then when you do that, we got to lovingly discipline you and we got to do something about it because we can't have disobedient children. And then you kind of turn just a little bit and you begrudgingly obey because you want your stuff back. Like, that's the cycle in our house. That's the hard way. And let me tell you that, that makes everybody miserable, doesn't it? Everybody's miserable. Now, the easy way, what's the easy way? You want to know what the easy way is? You want to know the easy way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here it is. You see, joyful obedience. Joyful obedience. Like when we ask you to do something, oh, yay, mom and dad, I'll do it. Yeah, in a heartbeat, I'll go. That's joyful obedience. Guess what? Everybody's happy. Like your life's so much better. See, that would, that would have been the case with Jonah. Like His life would have been so much better, but he lived in misery because he lived in between idolatry and God's supremacy. So that was big idea number one. And that's kind of why I wanted the big idea to hit home with us as individuals. Because what theology or missiological, or the study of God's mission, what has challenged you to change? What has challenged you to change? That's big idea number one. Here's big idea number two, and I won't spend as long on it. Big idea number two is this, and this is, this is for, the, for the cosmos. This is for humanity. Uh, big idea number two is for the person, is for the individual. Th- this is for humanity, and here it is. The sin of the runaway requires someone to become the castaway. The sin of the runaway requires someone to become the castaway. And this is what we see in verses 4 through 17. Like I said, this is, this is actually going to what we see in verses 4 through 17 actually gives us a picture of the entire human race. This is what it does. So if, uh, if you kind of want a good framework, good worldview, a biblical worldview of humanity, let's just look a little bit deeper in verses 4 through 17 in the book of Jonah. And what we have really in this text are four questions that help us unpack that big idea really for the world. Here's question number one. Why are you sound asleep when we are in so much trouble? Why are you sound asleep when we are in so much trouble? Look look at verse 4. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Now, let me just give you an idea. I brought like a little video. I found this video on YouTube. You can find anything on YouTube these days, can't you? So here's, here's the video that I found. Could you, could you sleep? Could you sleep like that? Like if you're on a cruise ship, could you sleep? Let me ask you, anybody, can anybody sleep in that? No. Well, one person. One, I mean, you must be taking some bad melatonin. I mean, you know what I'm saying? But I mean, like that, I don't think I could sleep. And I love cruising, but I couldn't even imagine being at the very bottom of the ship and it rocking like that. And so could you imagine you are on a much smaller ship than that? No wonder this this storm threatened to break up the ship. 
Now, then we read in verse 5 that all of the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. We do know, and, and I don't think there would be anybody in the world that would deny that the world is in trouble, that we are in a storm, that there are bad things that happen. There are things that threaten our life. Like ultimately, everybody's trying to figure out how to live forever, right? Because of this thing called death, right? So we know, we intuitively know something is wrong with us. Now, all of the sailors, they knew something was wrong. They're each crying out. Here's the thing. Crises has a way of making us spiritual. Crises has a way of making us spiritual. Because here they are, they're like, they're calling out to all of their gods. Uh, you, you know, the, the God of the sea, the God of the moon, the God of the sun, the God of fertility. Anybody out there? Can anybody help me? And then they don't mind sacrificing too. See, when they throw things overboard, they're either throwing their profits overboard or they're throwing the product overboard that would give them the, pro you know, the profit. I mean, so they don't mind sacrificing. See, crises has a way of making us spiritual and sacrificial. They're trying to do anything that they can to survive this storm. Now, while everyone is freaking out, here's what the Bible tells us about Jonah. Jonah had gone below deck. Now, again, when you're looking at the book of Jonah, and as you can tell, I'm having a lot of fun preaching this sermon. But what you, what you can find is like in verse 3, it says, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. Now Jonah had gone below deck. See, Jonah is spiraling out of control. When you choose the path of the hard way, when you choose the path of disobedience, let me tell you what happens as a child of God. You start spiraling down downward. And see, that's what's happening to Jonah. He's spiraling downward. A lot of you want to know why you're so angry, why you're so depressed, why things aren't going well. Well, when you kind of maybe, and this isn't for everybody, but when you start kind of tracing back your steps, what you'll find is that you are a runaway and you are spiraling downward. And that's Jonah. He's spiraling downward. So he, so he went below deck where he laid down and he fell into a deep sleep. Like I said, I think he's emotionally exhausted. I think he's emotionally depleted. I think he's depressed. Have you ever had a severe argument with someone that you love where you are emotionally drained, you're emotionally depressed, and all you want to do is go to bed? That's Jonah. And so he's down in the bowels of the boat, and the captain said to him, how can you sleep Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Jonah gives us this picture of a child of God, a follower of Jesus who is dead to the world. He is dead asleep while the world is trying not to drown. Jonah, because he's a runaway, because he's struggling between these polar opposite directions, he cannot even be effective for the world, for the common good. My, how this, my, how this does, I mean, gosh, how this doesn't just speak to where the church in America is at. We are struggling between two ideas, idolatry 
and God's supremacy, and we cannot even be a force for the common good in a world that knows it's drowning because we have so many idols that we are clinging to. And so Jonah, he gives us a picture of what it means to be dead to the world. Now, the second question is this, who's to blame for this trouble? Who's to blame for this trouble? We see this in verse 7. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. This is like a dice game. This is seriously what it is. It's like a dice game. And so they have these like two little dice with the kind of color-coded or whatnot. And, and so they would put it in a little cup, and they shake it up. And, they, and, and then, you know, Bill, let's say you were the first, you know, you're, 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 let's say you're the first crewman, right? And so you put these little two dice, you shake it up, uh, you shake up the dice in the cup and then you roll the dice and if if the colors didn't line up then it's not your fault and then we would go down the line and so they would shake the dice and they fought and well you're not you're not to blame you're not to blame what came to jonah and they shook the dice and you know land on the same color and like all right let's try this again just one more time make sure And, and so they and every time they cast casted lots and the colors fell on jonah so jonah's to blame isn't that, I mean, isn't that our world? They, we know that we are in trouble, but who's to blame? Who's to blame for our trouble? This is why, this is why the American you know, political scene is so funny to me, right? Is because you will never find a Democrat saying, hey, you know what, we, we call some of this trouble. Now, it was the Republicans. You see, back in 1998, they passed this law, then they passed this law, and so we're dealing with all of the trouble that happened. And then Republicans, they never take any blame either. No, nothing is ever a Republican's fault. Let me tell you what happened. Back, back in 2000, 2010, let me tell you what happened. I mean, like, no politician takes ownership for the trouble that we're in. We're just casting blame, right? And then, and then you would take socialist or a communist. Well, let me tell you who's to blame. It's the capitalist. You know, it's big, bad Wall Street. It's the one percenter. They're the ones to blame for our trouble, right? And then you have some people like, no, let's just blame China. China's the problem. If China wasn't it, then you just fill in the blank. And then now, once again, you have people that blame race. It's just race now. It's that color of skin. No, it's that color and so we just like blaming everybody because we're trying to find someone to blame for the trouble we are in well that's what's happened here storm comes threatens them who's to blame so they cast lots and jonah is to blame let me tell you what this reminds me of it reminds me of original sin because If the sailors were so innocent, God wouldn't have threatened their life. You know how I know this? Because if you read Genesis 18 and 19, God is having a discussion with Abraham, and Abraham's trying to intercede on behalf of of Sodom. And Abraham's like, hey, hey, God, if, if there were some righteous people in the city of Sodom, would you spare it? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. But the problem is he couldn't find anybody righteous to spare the city in Sodom. And so here what you have is that, yeah, Joseph, or Joseph, <laughs> Jonah is to blame for the storm that is threatening their life, but they're not innocent either. So that's why it reminds me of original sin. See, the reason why we live in a fallen and broken world, yeah, you go all the way back to Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve sinned. 
That's the original sin. And thereby we have this fallen, broken, marred, sinful world. Now, but before we become so self-righteous, here's what, here's what the Bible also teaches. If we were put in the same exact situation with the same exact circumstances as Adam and Eve, we would have sinned too. We're not innocent. So you have all of these people now who are not innocent, but the primary culprit is Jonah. And let me just say this on a side note, because this is also a principle that we see here. Our sin can and many times endanger others. Your sin of anger, your sexual sin, your sin of apathy, your sin of greed, your sin of self-centeredness, and your sin of pride can endanger the life of others. Question number three. Let me move really quickly. Who are you? So the sailors, they just want to know, okay, now we know you're, you're to blame. Verse eight, so they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? I mean, like they're giving him a form to fill out. I mean, like, bro, tell us all of these things while we're dying. I mean, it's like they're rapid fire questions. But here's what they want to know. They just want to know his identity. Who are you? Now, notice notice the order in which Jonah answers those questions. Verse 9. What does he say? I am a... And I worship the Lord. See, once again, we see idolatry bubble up in Jonah's life. He begins with saying, I'm a Hebrew. He begins with race, ethnicity. And then he goes, and I also worship the Lord. See, his primary identity is wrapped up in his ethnicity, not his deity. His race and his ethnicity become his controlling idol, his controlling God. All right, I don't really have time, but I'm I'm going to do it anyways. Here we go. Because of our cultural moment, let me mention something that is going on in our culture right now. We are once again so fixated on race and ethnicity. But this isn't anything new, as we see obviously from Jonah. Just like in Jonah's days as well of all of history, if we make race and ethnicity an idol, it will tear regions and countries apart. Let me say that again. This is what we see in Jonah's day. This is what we see throughout history. If we make race and ethnicity an idol, it will tear regions and countries apart. It will lead to hostility, resentment, anger, hatred, and even violence towards the other. So let me just ask some questions. Do I believe racism exists? Yes. Do I believe we all have racial tendencies and prejudices? Yes. I believe that we are fallen and marred by sin. Do I believe in structural racism? I do. I believe that flawed, human, broken, sinful human beings build structures and systems that disadvantage people of other races. So I do believe in structural racism. Do I believe that every structure has racism in it? No, not particularly. Do I believe that the answer to these issues is to learn CRT or to learn how to be anti-racist? No. I believe the answer is to fall deeper in love with the Jewish carpenter who was the God-man who came to make us new. 
Do I believe we should work for the common good to create a more just and fair society for all? Absolutely. Do I believe America has attempted to become a country like no other, one built upon pluralism and diversity where everyone has the ability to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Yes. Has America always succeeded at this? No. Has it made progress to form a more perfect union? Yes. Do we still have work? Yes. Happy fourth. See, but we are not, we, we, we don't only struggle with ethnocentrism. We don't only struggle with racism. There are other idols. Let me put up this cow. It has all of these idols that we, uh, and that cow, it goes up now. And so here, here's what we see. Yeah, that cow. Career, family, money, pleasure, fame, success, comfort, approval, power, culture, possessions. We all have idols. We all have idols. And let me just say it this way too. Here's a, here's a principle. Anytime you get your worship out of order, you will fail to follow God's orders. Anytime you get your worship out of order, you will fail to follow God's orders. Question number four. Everybody doing okay? And I'm, I'm, I'm almost done. This is question number four. Last question. Here we go. What do we need to do to calm down the storm? Oh, that's a great question. And that's what, that's what the sailors asked, right? Verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea, the sea calm down? Let me ask you this, what, what, what do you need to calm the storm of your marriage, to calm the storms of violence, the storms of unbridled, lustful passions, the storms of identity crisis, the storms of anger, forgiveness, bitterness, and resentment? You need a castaway. See, Jonah answers them, verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. You know what this reminds me of? It actually reminds me of Leviticus 16, of the scapegoat. On the day of atonement, when Israel's sins would be covered for for the next year, one of the things that happened on Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement, was that they would take two goats. One, they would... Killed the, they, they would kill one goat as a sacrifice. The other goat, here's what they would do. They would put blood all over, on, on this goat. They would take it outside the city, and they would release the goat to the wilderness. It was called the scapegoat. See, if you want the, if you want the, if you want the storm of God's wrath to calm down, you need a scapegoat. If you want the storm to calm down, you need a castaway. And Jonah tells the sailors, cast me away. I'll become the scapegoat. But the men have a hard time because they don't want to commit murder. And so they row as hard as they possibly can to outrun the storm and get back to dry ground. Can I just say that as human beings, again, this is what we see in verses 4 through 17 is a framework for the world. And here's what we know about the world is that the world will try to row and row and row and row and row and row and row to get away from the wrath of God, to get away from the judgment of God. But you cannot row hard enough. You cannot row fast enough to outrow the wrath of God. You need a castaway. You need a 
scapegoat. And so they realize that it is futile. And so here's what they say in verse 14. Then they cry out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, Lord, have done as you please. And so they threw Jonah overboard. What happened when they threw Jonah overboard? The storm calmed. The sea grew calm. So what are we left with to know? Well, here's what we are left with, that Jesus is the greater Jonah. And here's how Jesus is the greater Jonah. He left the perfection and the glory of heaven and went obediently with joy to dirty, rotten, broken, and depraved earth. He crossed cultural boundaries with joyful obedience to the Father. Jesus found himself asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm, not from emotional exhaustion or depression, but as a faith test for his disciples. When they uh, uh, kind of uh, awoken him, he calmed the storm by simply saying what? Peace be still. Jesus cosmically took the place of Jonah as the willing castaway to fully calm and satisfy God's wrath towards sinners. Jesus says, I'll be the castaway. I'll be the scapegoat to satisfy the wrath of God. And then uh, Jesus, he spent three days in the belly of the earth before being resurrected, sending his church on mission, and then being seated at the right hand of God. Uh, Jesus is the greater and better Jonah because he tells us, he shows us what joyful obedience looks like to people who do not look like us. He shows us what it means to be the cosmic savior, the cosmic castaway, the cosmic scapegoat to fully satisfy the wrath of God. We know that we are in trouble, yet if we follow Jesus, if we have faith in Jesus, the storm will not hit us. We will be safe. And then we will find ourselves dwelling with him forever and ever and ever. But until then, we follow Jesus, the greater Jonah, on mission. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not be like Jonah, but that we would be like the greater Jonah. Thank you, Jesus, for being the greater Jonah that when we were a runaway, you became our castaway. Thank you for being the greater Jonah because you give us not only this picture of what it means to live for the Father, but you have sent the Spirit of God to empower us to live for the Father so that anytime our idols are challenged, we can relinquish them and we can cling to the Father. So Father, I pray that we would cling to you, that we would have loose hands with our idols and tight fists with our Father, that we'll cling to you. Instead of running away, may we run to you over and over and over again. For you are our faithful, merciful Father. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.